Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Vintran Red, joined by Nizar Hassan. Hey, Nizar, how's it Hi. going? Great. Welcome, welcome back. This is our uh, this is our first time since you are back from getting your master's degree. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank by the you. Way. <laughs> right. what, what was your degree in exactly? Development studies. All right. From the All University right. of London. Yep. So now you can go and develop things. Yep. Okay. All right. Definitely that. <laughs> well, congratulations. Welcome back. Uh, and we're back uh, from a hiatus as well. Uh, we took three weeks. You were gone two weeks. We'd planned to go on hiatus for two weeks, right? And then something happened. Uh, our, our producer, uh, the morning that we were going to record three weeks ago, a fire broke out in our home. And so we didn't. We went on, we went on a little extended hiatus. Uh, so now we're back, though. Three weeks off full of energy, and lots of stuff went on as well, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, exciting. Yeah, right? But it seems to me like the the most exciting things happened, like within the past week, as always. I know, right? I know. <laughs> right? I mean, how often do you discover chicken coops in the ele- National Electricity Company, right? <laughs> like, this, this is, the like, the greatest story ever, right? <laughs> so they found, I, I guess, uh, there, there's this uh, inspection bureau, government ins- uh, inspection bureau, and they went to EDL, Electricity uh, du Liban, and they found chicken coops in the basement of the headquarters of the company. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, of course, this blew up on social media. Uh, everybody's making fun of this, uh, and, and especially because, like, okay, we don't have 24-hour electricity here, yeah. yet somehow the chickens got 24-hour electricity. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I mean, EDL is already a joke, so now it's uh, there are so many ways we can make jokes. About right, it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, they like no nobody really respects EDL in this country. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, we also had a fun story from uh, the, from our president Michel Aoun. Uh, he made sort of a faux pas, right? Yeah, just just a slip of a tongue while um, giving the name for the new generation of army officers during the army celebration, army day celebration. Yeah. So like a new, a new class of cadets was graduating or something, right? Yeah. And so, and, and typically when this happens, they request that the president give them like a name for their class and they request that name. And then like the president responds and gives him that, it gives them that name, right? Exactly. And so what? They requested the name (laughs) Fajr al-Jurud, which is the operation where the Lebanese army liberated the the outskirts of Arsal. Um, right against Daesh exactly. and Nusra and all those guys, right? Yeah. And he responded saying, um, let your generation be named Fajr al-Qurud, which means <laughs> the dawn of the apes or the monkeys. <laughs> it's just a slip of a tongue, but the whole country, uh, to say appropriately, they lost their shit. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those like tiny little things. It, it, it's not like mean or anything in, in mean spirit, mm-hmm. at least like I don't think for most people, like it was just a slip of the tongue. But like people were, uh, you know, uh, sort of defensive about yeah, it as well. PM's people got really defensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they, uh, they, uh, you, you told me they changed, uh, was it Teleliban? Teleliban and MTV, and obviously OTV, I didn't see OTV, but I think as well. OTV is, is the FPM station, exactly. right? Yeah, right. But MTV and Teleliban, they edited the video so that Aoun says Fajr al-Jurud rather than Fajr al-Qurud. <laughs> so they went and found some other audio of Aoun saying Fajr al-Jurud exactly. and replaced it in the video. And the editing was quite bad, so you can you could notice it very clearly. <laughs> uh, also, uh, things that have 
been going on since since we left you guys. Uh, the, the McKinsey report that was commissioned by the government to like, oh, what can we do to, you know, kickstart the economy and all this stuff that uh, came out. We haven't seen it yet. It hasn't been publicly released. But the headline is that, oh, cannabis and avocados can be used <laughs> to like jumpstart the economy. Like if you legalize cannabis and of course, like people like Willie Jumblatt were like, oh, really? We had to pay like a, a million dollars to find that out. What I've been telling you for years, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the results were very obvious, and uh, it wasn't very informative to say the least. Yeah, yeah not, not not the greatest like advertisement for McKinsey. Uh, although we don't know because we haven't read the we haven't yeah. seen the report. They won't release the goddamn report, yeah. so we can't actually judge it on its merits. You know, so it just looks bad for them right now. It's a <laughs> PR sort of disaster for McKinsey. You know. <laughs> Also, uh, we, we had another refugee return, this time larger. So these things are going to keep on going on and we're going to keep an eye on that. Um, one thing I think that's interesting that happened a couple of weeks ago, Parliament elected their committee members. And just really quickly, I think that it, it's interesting to note the numbers. I, I crunched the numbers on this. And uh, if you look at like the proportion of seats that uh, the parties won. Some parties sort of like punched above their weight and some definitely punched below their weight in getting committee assignments. Okay. Uh, and whether that's, you know, it, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference in the end, mm -hmm. but it is interesting, I think, that Amal punched so far above their weight. They should have gotten, based on what their block got, their their 17-member block, they should have had 28 or 29 of the 214 seats on committees. Instead, they took 36. So they, they punched above their weight by like 7.5 seats, right? Nice. Which is pretty impressive. Uh, nobody else did that. Like Some people like punched below their weight significantly. Like the, the PSP were down like five seats. They, uh, they should have had five, five more committee chairs or five more committee seats than, than they actually took. Uh, the Merida Karami uh, block as well it was like four under. Um, I was very excited about legislation. Yeah, right? <laughs> like, come on, get in there. And uh, another interesting thing is that there were some, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of these parliamentarians are new, right? There were like 79 new members of parliament, I guess, or like 60 some odd who had never been in parliament before. And some of them, like Tony Frangie, for instance, he could be like sort of the Zaim. I'm not going to go on any committee assignments because that's sort of what if you're the Zaim, you don't do that. Right. Mm -hmm. But he he took committee assignments, which mm -hmm. I, you know, like I respect that. You know, that's uh, that's really cool that he, he didn't just say, oh, I'm above all of this, this uh, process of legislation. No, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to, you know, take a committee assignment or two. Yeah, I appreciate your appreciation, but he's like 30. I mean, if he doesn't do that, well, he's quite useless. Well, Teymour Jumblat didn't take anything. Okay, no comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, just so like a, a really big thing that happened uh, this week is or that's that's going to be happening next week, rather, is that the power barge, the the third power barge, the free power barge that we're getting for the, the summer. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. The electrical power barge uh, from the Turkish company who is offering us the electricity. right? Yeah, they it, right now it's docked in GA. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to uh, be in Zahrani in the south. And then it was now it's in GA and uh, on Monday, it's going to depart, uh, it's scheduled to depart, uh, to go up to Zoukmakail, just north of Beirut and Kesirwain, mm -hmm. uh, and be connected there. And the Kesirwainis are going to get like more than 21 hours of electricity. 
Which is that's what that's what the FPM people are saying. To be honest, it's not really. The, the, no, EDL is saying that as well. Oh, really? They're, yeah. Okay. Uh, so there, there was a great piece in uh, my publication, the Daily Star. Uh, Timur Azhari uh, reported that um, an EDL source actually said, "No, they they will get more than twenty one hours of electricity," um, and basically all of the extra power from this power barge is going to go to Jebel Kisarain and Metten right there, mm-hmm. that sort of like Christian heartland there, right? Yeah. Uh, it's not going to go to the rest of the country. So if you live in that area, congratulations. You <laughs> have more electricity. You'll probably have more electricity than people in Beirut have, uh, at least until the power barge leaves us, supposedly, in the future. Yeah. I really think this is one of the most amazing stories because people like Zama leaders are rejecting electricity to be provided to their main constituents. This is what happened with Birri or the Amal movement, rejecting the ship, the barge in Zahrani saying it's because of environmental concerns. But actually what all the analysis, like all the reports are saying is that because the private generators lobby uh, rejected it because they would run out of business or at least for three months, they would not have any good income uh, because people would have electricity from the state. Uh, Imagine that. And then (laughs) Jumblad also rejected it in GE, said we don't want it here. Also, I think cycling. Well, in, in, in GA, supposedly the deal was like, OK, we will take the, the, the power barge, but we want you to reduce mm. the amount of power that the GA power plant is producing because it's really dirty. And yeah, making and the a, people are very mobilized around it. So Jean Blatt was afraid that maybe bringing another source of pollution to this place would provoke more and more mobilization right. among the people. And so when the, they brought it, though, like they they didn't decrease the power plant, so like a, a, according to one PSP MP, like they actually increased the GA power yeah. plant. And then uh, like th- this power barge has a capacity to give like 235 uh, megawatts or something like that. And only 35 of those were being used because the technical capacity like just wasn't there to add more. Exactly. Right. And and so uh, there there's this like sort of fascinating like technical and political like yeah, angle and all these to different this. like actors involved like the private generators lobby uh, literally f- fighting against people having electricity from the state and then you have people mobilizing and how it's affecting like the leader's decision to whether accept more electricity or not so it's really a very interesting like political game that's happening around this right and then right. the winner was fpm saying yeah we're gonna give you two, 22 or 24 hours of electricity yeah yeah just like they basically got uh, the victory out of this whole political mess so right it's an interesting right right yeah no it's, it's a great victory for for all of the especially the kisaweni uh mps uh, so the the other like continuing big story, of course, that we have your is favorite, my favorite <laughs> cabinet formation, of course. Uh, and w- when when we left you last time, it, it was still early in the game, right? Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it was like oh, a month, month and a half. It, it, like no, now we are we are a solid like two and a half months in almost. Uh, when you listen to this on Monday, uh, it will have been seventy four days. From uh, May 24th, when Saad Haru was designated to form a government. Uh, and so we're, we're definitely past like the lightning fast government formation phase and moving on towards like the 2009 or 2011 government formation phase. Those, those took like 135 and 139 days uh, respectively. And, and that's sort of like, I think, what everybody sort of thought was going to happen yeah. anyway. Uh, it, just for, for our listeners who are outside Lebanon, there there is no sense right now that there will be a government formed in August. Uh, I mean, anything could happen. Any like, and, and these things have been known to like turn on a dime before, but uh, like 
Haruri is out of the country now on vacation, I believe. Uh, Zha Zha, same. Uh, August is typically a month that everybody just sort of like goes on vacation and comes out. It's, it's really hot right now. It's, uh, you can't get any work done, you know, exactly. honestly. Too and humid it, for the government. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and, and besides that, like September is when things like start to start up administratively, you know, like you've got schools starting up, things like that. And so that's really when you need to start having a government. Um, and so most likely that's when we'll see uh, movement on this. Now, that being said, there's there's been this debate and I've wanted to talk about this for a while uh, on this program about w what exactly is causing the delay in the government formation. And specifically, is this is this, is it external factors or internal factors? Mm -hmm. um, and so there's this argument that says it's really mostly external. And there's there's a few different cases for that. Uh, there, there's one case that says, um, well, uh, Saudi and other American allies were sort of waiting uh, to see if something would change in the region, uh, especially with uh, the Trump administration uh, starting to press harder on Iran, uh, sanctions coming into effect, that sort of a thing. Uh, the, the, the thinking was, why lock in a Lebanese, after, after the elections in May, that uh, were sort of like won by like the former March 8th forces, why lock in this government now when something might change regionally in mm. just a couple of months that uh, would 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 change things and maybe make government formation more favorable to like a, a Western uh, uh, mindset? Mm -hmm. um, th that seems to me like it strikes me as like overly optimistic about things and like, well, that's not really how quickly things work here. If, if you want to do that, you might be waiting much longer than you anticipated. Yeah. Uh, but but this is one of the arguments. An another argument uh, uh, the, in the case for the external factors is that uh, actually Saudi wants to punish Lebanon. This is a really weird argument, right? It says that Riyadh basically acknowledges that Lebanon has fallen into Iran's uh, and Hezbollah's clutches, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, it would actually be easier for the international community to impose like really strict sanctions on Lebanon. If you just say no, no Hariri government, just let Hezbollah, FPM, Amal, those guys form a government on their own. And and then like the international community can be like, no sanctions. Uh, and, and then in the long term, you are able to sort of like punish Lebanon into submission, I guess. It, it's It's a weird argument to me because it's sort of like, let's lose Lebanon in order to get it back, which is possibly somebody's calculus, but it strikes me as also like sort of a stretch, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Now there, there's, there's, there's a third argument that I, like me personally, I think carries a little bit more weight. And that is sort of like, there is an external factor, but it's more the lack of external factors, right? Mm -hmm. And that there's nobody in Riyadh calling up Walid Jumblat or, you know, calling up Gibran Basile and saying, if you give in on this point in the cabinet formation process, we're going to give you X, Y, Z mm -hmm. in compensation. Those calls clearly are not happening, right? Yeah. Uh, and so this makes me think like, okay, so there's nobody actively seeming, uh, seemingly, you know, uh, facilitating from the outside a government formation. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that seems pretty plain as day. So those are sort of the three arguments the, about like external factors. And uh, I think the last one you mentioned implies that it's actually internal factors that are hindering government formation, but there's a lack of external factors that would catalyze it otherwise, right? Right. And 
and, and this sort of like lines up with, and, and maybe it's just because like I'm too close to it. I'm living here in Lebanon and I deal with this stuff every single day, but it seems to me that no, it's, it's mostly it's internal, you know? Yeah. And, and the biggest thing to me is the, the Christian representation. I mean, mm-hmm. this is nothing groundbreaking, but very clearly you have uh, the, this problem between the FPM and the LF that is not being solved. And it seems to me, I, I would argue that this is basically because Gibran Basile and the FPM are trying to press their advantage right now. Yeah. And, and it makes sense that they would. Right now, Gibran Basile is more powerful than he has ever been before. Probably he, he will ever be also. Well, we don't know that, right? He's, he's gunning for the presidency, yeah. right? That We know that is what he wants. At Once Aoun uh, leaves office, he wants to be the next president of the Lebanese Republic, mm-hmm. right? And right now, though, he's at, he's at this point where he is the leader of the largest bloc in parliament. Mm-hmm. He is the president of the biggest Christian party in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is also a minister, uh, a longtime minister. We, we just hit the 10-year mark that he has been a minister in the government. Uh, his, his father-in-law is the president. So he's got all of these levers right now. Yeah. And if he wants to... If, any if he, political advances, it would be now. Yeah, exactly. He's got to lock in these gains and do even more if mm. he wants, a, a, you know, a better chance at uh, sitting in Babda Palace in the mm. future, right? Uh, and so you see these things like you you hear these rumors of like he's asking for like a blocking third in cabinet, which is crazy. Like if if you have one third plus one member in cabinet, you can basically stop all work, yeah. right? According to the constitution, um, so he supposedly is asking for that, which is insane. You know, like. Everybody in the negotiations asked for a little bit more than than they uh, than they actually should get, but he seems to be asking for a whole lot more. But it makes sense about that as well, right? It, uh, b- because of that uh, position that he's in. Mm-hmm. But it also means that well, we're not going to see a government anytime soon until something happens and there's some sort of pressure, specifically probably coming from Aoun or or some ac- external factor or that happens. Allah. Or Hezbollah, right, right. Eventually, it has to happen. I mean, eventually, this is the thing. Like, we're increasingly, it's it's on borrowed time. Nobody wants to see a ten month gap before yeah. uh, a new uh, government takes uh, uh, takes office. But yeah, that explains why Ibrahim Basile is basically like opening battles with everyone, right? He has this battle with Birri, with Jumblat, with the. Lebanese forces. It's just right, right. He's he, everybody's enemies. Right, now, yeah? right, right. Well, which I, I don't know about the strategy of that, if that's a, a, going to be an effective strategy or not. But uh, I, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But I think it's really like interesting because um, to a lot of people, it's a bit strange that FPM is now the most influential and like the, the political party that can basically make things work or stop things from working or getting the biggest political share of everything. Um, yeah. And like Basile having this much leverage, whereas... A few years back, he was like really seen as he was not taken as serious, to say the least, by like Lebanese people in general and also in the political scene. He was yeah. still under Aoun's shadow. He was still uh, like uh, I mean the that continues till today, right? He's yeah. still under, but Aoun's he's getting shadow. first stage more. Well, Aoun it is sort of like trying to promote him, right? Mm-hmm. So you you have uh, block leaders visiting Babda Palace and Aoun basically saying, no, you need to talk to the leader of the FPM, who is Gibran Basile. Now, that makes sense on paper, like the president of the country saying, no, you need to talk to your 
your like Samir Jaja, you need to talk to your uh, your counterpart, Gibran mm-hmm. uh, Basile. But in reality, like Aoun is still seen yeah. as uh, like just in, in terms of public perception, Aoun is still the Zion. Yeah. Right. And, I mean, Gibran Basile, when he was uh, inaugurated as the head of FPM, he said literally, Aoun will be the eternal leader of the party. Yeah. Like it was very clear that he's not trying to sideline Aoun in any way. He's still in his shadow, as you're saying. Yeah. But like, so how did the FPM become so powerful, though? I think that's a really uh, basic question that we have to answer. Right. If we want to understand what's going on. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think to understand the FPM, we should like mostly understand Aoun because it's really Aoun's party. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about that later. But like FPM started uh, recently as a major, like as an official political party, but it started with the movement that Aoun had as an as a chief of the army, armed forces in um, late 80s, when he was also asked by um, uh, then President Amin Jmail to head a military government. Um, so we had two governments at the same time, Salim Hassan's government and Michelle Aoun's government. East Beirut, West Beirut, yeah. Exactly, the Muslim and the Christian governments. And then Aoun fought a liberation, what he called the liberation war against the Syrian army troops, which had been in Lebanon for like 14 years back then. And the Syrians kind of won, they advanced onto Ba'abda Palace where he was staying, and then he fled to the French embassy, and 10 months later, he went into exile to France um, for till 2005. So when he went to France, he continued mobilizing people against the tutelage of the Syrian army in Lebanon. And, um, uh, you know, the Ta'if Accord, which ended the civil war, but was also Syria sponsored. So it was seen as like kind of normalizing right. serious political power in Lebanon. Yeah. Um, he, he came back to 2000, in 2005 after the huge mobilization against the Syrian army, what was called the Cedars Revolution, uh, the March 14 uh, huge protest, um, which led to the Syrian army withdrawing from Lebanon. So he came back in May 2005. First thing he did went to reconcile with Jaja because he had fought against Jaja in the late 80s. Um, uh, when Jaja was still in prison, actually, in 2005, uh, he went and uh, had a meeting with uh, Strida Jaja, Jaja's wife and the current MP. And after that, he kind of launched the FPM as an official political party in Lebanon. And uh, I think it's like interesting to kind of look at what it stood for because right now we like we don't see parties in Lebanon as like really yeah like the, the way the way it started out like back in 2005 and everything like the, the, like there were a lot of people like and, and I'm, I'm not just talking about like at the high levels in the own family or anything but like people on the ground who really believed in like all of these uh principles like they they they, yeah. they had like a manifesto and everything so like the major points of that the commitment to capitalism right yeah definitely and uh, I can say that I remember how many people of like what is called civil society and activists and people who are very progressive were in the FPM when it started. I mean, it, it was sort of like an almost left-ish leaning. Yeah, like uh, center-left, quasi, but mostly very right? progressive, uh, yeah. very secular, it's democratic. Because the charter of the FPM itself says that, uh, okay, it's committed to capitalism and free enterprise, but it's also within the limits of social justice and welfare. So it's kind of like a center-left kind of party. Um, it's secularist. It calls for a secular state and the separation of the of religion and politics. It also says uh, that women and men are equal, and we should do whatever we can to uh, like establish gender equality in Lebanon. Yeah. And it says that uh, democracy is the system in Lebanon, and we should fight against the mentality of tutelage. And you know, there was this whole like this discourse uh, against feudalism and against the uh, zaim um, political culture that we have in Lebanon. 
um, by right. FBI so they were they were like a, like a leading voice and saying like this feudalist state needs to end. We're like this thing that's based on like families. Kind of politics, and, yeah. exactly. Um, by the way, uh, our listeners, you can find the link to the charter in the description of this episode. And so uh, this is how things started, right? So it, like really 2005, yes, there had been a lot of organizing in France and, uh, before this, uh, in France and Lebanon before this, but when Aoun came back in 2005, that's really when things started. Yeah. And we also had elections in 2005, right? Exactly. Uh, Aoun came back to a huge welcome from a lot of people who were uh, protesting and involved in the March 14 movement. A lot of people from Lebanese forces and Kataib as well, by the way, were like very excited about Aoun returning uh, because of what he represented as like the anti-Syrian kind of figure. Uh, he came back the election. In the elections, actually, you had this coalition of all the major political forces, Hezbollah, Amal, Future Movement, Lebanese forces and Jumblat's PSP against Town in the elections. Um, so we, what, we, what was called the quadruple election uh, alliance. And Jean Blatt then called Aoun Tsunami, like a political threat to the, to the Lebanese system. And he was mm -hmm. right, because Aoun came back. The first election, after being banned from organizing for so long, he got 15 MPs. Compared Huge, to, yeah. Compared to six for Lebanese forces and two for Kataab. So he was like literally like the most yeah, significant like, political force. He the came moment in he and came just back. like upended things. Exactly. Right. Just like turned over tables, said, OK, this is I, I am here. You can't keep me out. You have to deal with me. Exactly. Right. And back then it was like kind of the Aoun who's anti-Ta'if against the Ta'if forces. Um, but then what switched thing, switched thing completely was the memorandum of understanding with Hezbollah. It was the first time that Aoun meets Nasrallah uh, in February uh, 2006. And they established uh, the Memorandum of Understanding, which most importantly established that FPM was not going to be Hezbollah's political enemy, that it was only through dialogue that they would resolve all issues, uh, including like hinting at Hezbollah's weapons, that they are committed to a common stance on Syria, uh, which is the most interesting part. Right. Like, the, like all of Aoun's history up to this point has been based on opposition to Syria, exactly. like literally fighting against the Syrians in like 1989. And then, you know, coming back to Lebanon only after the Syrians had uh, withdrawn from the, con uh, he, from the country, right? Exactly. And he, before coming back, he accused Syria of killing Rafi Hariri, by the way. This is like, there's a video of that on YouTube. Everyone can see it. He said Syria killed Rafi Hariri. He was like super anti-Syrian in all of his rhetoric and his politics. So this 2006 agreement, Marukhail agreement, like this was watershed yeah this changed things completely and this established the beginning of the alliance between Aoun and Hezbollah but what's really I think kind of gave it its actual political weight and what um, made Aoun part of the wider March 8 coalition was the anti-government mobilization in 2006 2008 right um, so Fouad uh, uh basically formed a government after the elections in 2005 exactly. and it was a sort of a majoritarian government right yeah. and but but it didn't really last too long, right? Because in as in 2006, we had a bunch of ministers like Hezbollah Amal uh, withdraw uh, or resign from the from the cabinet, right? And then we also had all of these protests and everything, right? Exactly. There was an occupation of uh, like a civil occupation of downtown Beirut for a while, mm. um, and there was like this huge slogan "Asfar Akhtar which means yellow, green, and orange. We're going to overthrow the government. It was like uh, something that rhymes pretty well in Arabic. So it was huge mobilization and kind of established uh, FPM as part of the March 8 uh, wide coalition. Um, and then after, you know, we had this 
clash, these clashes in 2008 when the government was trying to crack down on Hezbollah's telecommunications network and there was the yeah. fighting between Hezbollah and Future. Yeah, everything sort of like came to a head in, in May of 2008, the yeah. so-called May events, Hezbollah taking over parts of the country, rolled into West Beirut, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Shouf as well against the PSP uh, like forces. And then you had the Doha agreement, which can... Right, so this is this is sort of like the breaking point. Like everybody was like, okay, no, we, we need to sit down and talk this out before... Like the civil war starts again. Exactly. Sort of. So it was kind of a new ta'if, but it was a, like a preventive kind of ta'if accord. Yeah. Uh, so, the, and after the Doha, Doha agreement, most importantly, Aoun went to see Bashar al-Assad in Syria and he went to Iran as well. So it was a new political era for Lebanon and Aoun was making clear where he stands. He's uh, an ally to Syria to a certain extent because he went to see Bashar al-Assad yeah. and to Iran in a very short period of time. So he's established himself as um, not only Hezbollah's ally, but also Syria's ally. It was just a few months before the elections of 2009. Yeah, so like, and this sort of completed, if there was any doubt about the the uh, Hezbollah uh, 2006 mem- memorandum and his position on Syria, like this sort of completed everything. All right, so what happened in 89 and all that stuff, that's done completely. Uh, it, it completed his movement to the other, like sort of pro-Syrian side, right? Exactly, and the alliance, and the alliance that FPM struck with Hezbollah and Amal in the 2009 elections was also the official alliance, right? Because they um, waged the elections along with Hezbollah, Amal, and Frangia as well, mm-hmm. um, and uh, FPM won a quite large. Uh, share of the parliament with 20 MPs. So it kind of maintained its um, its number of MPs with one more and established itself in the political alliance with these forces formally. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just now we can fast forward to 2018 with the recent yeah, I mean, that was, that was That was really the, the important point in all of this was that changing its position on Syria, right? And, exactly. and the way that that happened between 2005 and 2008. Uh, roughly, exactly. and then everything since then, like there haven't been huge. Say, there have been changes inside the party, right? They've they've been growing. They've been uh, extending their networks in inside the civil service, inside the bureaucracy. Uh, there have been changes inside the party as well, with Aoun, you know, stepping down uh, as the leader and basically appointing Gibran Basile as the the new leader of the FPM. Uh, but fundamentally, there haven't been like these huge uh, shifts. Exactly. Since then, between 2008 and today. Exactly. As you decade. said, the most important part is that through its alliance with Hezbollah, through its maybe change of position again, uh, towards Syria and all of these things that we talked about, FPM went from being a force that was um, sidelined by all the major political forces into the major Christian political force and kind of the prominent uh, the, the party with the prominent Christian share in government. Yeah. So. But I mean, the, the other interesting change, though, it is sort of like the low key one, right? That that's just sort of like administrative in nature. And like, what do they stand for? You know, uh, if, if we you know, you, you talked about the principles that they were uh, based on uh, back in 2005. Yeah, they, they laid out. If we look at those today, they don't quite stack up, oh, right? No, they, <laughs> yeah. they definitely don't. Yeah. Like, like taking gender equality, right, as an example, how many MPs and ministers have they ever had? I, I, I know Gilbert Swain mm-hmm. in the last parliament. This parliament, they don't have any MP, any women MPs. 29 MPs, zero women. Exactly, exactly. Uh, they have never had a minister, never. a female minister. 
and and so okay, you you talk this game, but where is where is the action? Yeah. Right. And also on other issues, right? Like they came back as a secular party, and I remember all these debates about secularism between Alain and the and like uh, more like mainstream like establishment politicians back then about secularism and stuff like that. And now it's exactly the opposite of that. Like now FPM represents the right-wing Christian kind of political rhetoric in Lebanon. It's very, Which is very politically Canadian. smart. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it that, gets you votes. It works. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but like, yeah, this was a huge shift as well. There's an absolutely no mention of secularism anymore, mm. uh, anywhere. It's rather focused on the partnership between Christians and Muslims and the Christians' share and Christians' rights in politics. Yeah. Uh, even in terms of like basic, I think, political culture, the idea that FPM was the anti-feudalist, uh, the anti-family like, uh, politics kind of uh, movement, uh, the democratic <laughs> movement, the ideological yeah. democratic movement. Right, right. Did not really. I mean, I mean, if you if you look at who's in power today from this, I mean, it, it, there there's a lot of owns that, that come up. You know, yeah. uh, you you have Michel Aoun at the top, and then who did who replaced him as the leader of the FPM and as its most prominent uh, minister, Gibran Basile, who is his son-in-law. Yeah. Right. And I really think it's interesting to tell like our listeners how this happened, right? The elections inside the FPM, because uh, Alain Aoun was the most popular and he was um, expected to be the next FPM leader. Which, by the way, he's the nephew of Michel Aoun. Oh, okay. So it's not a big change, but still Aoun literally, like, clearly preferred Basile over uh, Alain Aoun because the elections were about to happen and then um, Michel Aoun asked Alain Aoun to withdraw. Everyone knew that Basir was not very popular and that Aoun would win. win. And then Aoun said, Ana Aoun said, upon the wish of the, of the leader, Michel Aoun, I'm going to withdraw from the race uh, for the sake of the unity of the party. Uh, so it was a bit strange. A lot of FPM uh, members um, resigned or quit or like... I mean, I, mean you, you, I, I would be careful not to overstate that. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, I mean, Alain Aoun is, is still like one of the major leaders of the FPM. Uh, of you know, one of those prominent members. Uh yeah, so you, you've got uh, Alain Aoun, who was up for the leadership, uh, didn't get it. It went to the son-in-law instead of the nephew. Um, and, and then you have sort of a newcomer, Shemel Rukos, who is another son-in-law of Aoun, <laughs> uh, being elected as an MP. Uh, uh, Aoun, prior to this, Aoun had pushed very, very hard for Shemel to become the next leader of the army. Yep. Uh, and that was uh, shut down by the other political forces. So he said, okay enough of this, uh, uh, he'll go into politics instead, he'll become an MP. Um, he's, you know, his name is widely circulated as a potential minister in, in the next government. And then you also have Shamel's wife, Claudine Rukos, who's the head of the National Committee for Lebanese Women. That's a state organization. She helps out her, her, her father. Uh, she's an FPM official, uh, or, or was. And it, she, she runs this, uh, or, or She's a partner in this uh, advertising agency that has Clementine, like, yeah, yeah, that has a lot of connections. That uh, represents a lot of uh, state institutions and private institutions of both those affiliated with the FPM and and those not, honestly. Yeah. Uh, but like so, seven ministries and many other state institutions as clients. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which I mean, also, okay, Lebanon is a small place, uh, so if you, you know, if you're big, then you may have. Uh, all of these different clients, if, if you're good at your business, right? Yeah, you're a nice person. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, we also have a, 
uh, Alan has three daughters. So we've talked about two of the sons-in-law and one of those daughters. And then there's the third daughter, uh, Mireille, who is one of his top advisors uh, in Bab de Palace. Uh, and her name has been circulated as well as potentially being a minister, yeah. uh, which which would be, hey, the FBM's first uh, woman minister. Uh, so, uh, Aun's daughter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so so maybe that would be a good thing in, in the scheme of things. <laughs> like if you, if you put put all this together, you know, you, you sort of have this feeling that like, oh, if you want to get ahead in Lebanon, you just need to, you know, be an Aoun. You need yeah. to marry into the Aoun family, you know, it, 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 it considering the anti-feudalism aspect of what the FPM was based on, it's a lot of cognitive dissonance, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's very contradictory to what it stood for. Uh, to say the least, and I've seen discussions among the Orum uh, website where all these uh, FPM members discuss things. Oh, that is a great site, yeah. right? Yeah, it's huge, yeah. and it's just uh, like a bulletin talking... board. You should definitely check it out, listeners. Yeah, it's uh, called the Orange Room or Orum.com or something like that. And the people were talking about this, like Zaun betraying our values by doing that. I mean, he's definitely um, going towards nepotism as like the way he does politics, but. How far will he go? Is it gonna be like a real like political dynasty kind of thing? Will we see like more and more family members in the future, or is it just like the people who were around him when he was returning and gaining political leverage? But there is a bit of dissatisfaction, to say the least, with this. The fourth main element of the charter that we talked about, which is like commitment to uh, the welfare state and social justice, etc. We also have to point that FPM has completely changed on that as well. I mean, in terms of policies, FPM has been one of the most right-wing um, political factions in, in like economic policies, even in terms of composition of their new political elite. They're running with businessmen everywhere. They had Nicolas Chamas on, on, list, on their list in Beirut first. Nicolas Chamas is literally the most right-wing economic figure. Uh, he's like the anti-protest uh, movement kind of person who they had him on their list and they had many other huge businessmen. Um, Sarkis Sarkis and Metin, uh, um, Namat Frem, the biggest industry in Lebanon, yeah, Michel right. Daher. Yeah. So it's really the party of the capitalists now and the both kinds of capitalists, the bankers and the industrials. But this is like established that FPM is a political elite now that contains a huge business lobby. Yeah, yeah. So Which I, I that, think I think I think as well though there this is a larger thing that we need to discuss in the future. Mm -hmm. It is that where are the left-wing parties in this country, right? Oh, <laughs> they're, yeah. they're, they're, they <laughs> don't exist, right? Yeah. <laughs> and every party, you know, you talk about the FPM, it's a right-wing party now. The LF is a right-wing party now. Like, everybody basically is a right-wing party. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, at some point in the future, we're going to have to get into that. Definitely. But, uh, but yeah, that, it, this is a good starting point to, like, go back and see where the FPM is and how they've gotten to this point, you know. And... Uh, I don't know, we're, we're, we're thinking about doing this, uh, talking about some of the other political parties as well in the future, sort of like deconstructing their history and, and everything. Let us know if that's something you want to hear. I I think it would be interesting. I've, I've been asking Nizar for weeks now, like, tell me what happened to the Lebanese Communist Party. Uh, <laughs> just like, teach me everything. I, I think we should talk about that at some yeah, point. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I've been asking other people as well. It's fascinating. Yeah. 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 <laughs> But yeah, uh, other than that, um, thanks so much for listening. We'll come back to you next week with a new episode as well. Uh, until then, uh, my name is Benjamin Red. My name is Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast.
The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar El-Fil.